This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 103, Meditations on the Abyss. Getting ever so close to the end of Season 5 and the end of Babylon 5 proper. And we do that with a kind of a combination big sprawling episode and slice of life little episode i i'm not sure exactly which it is but we have a lot of our characters almost the full cast uh involved in this story in one to one extent or another and it just felt all kind of warm and fuzzy to me because (laughs) all my people were there they're acting like themselves Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things Steven said at the end was, uh, you know, we were one telepath away from having a full cast of Babylon 5 for the first time in a long time. And then I was like, uh, what about Lockley? And he's like, ah, <laughs> crap, I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's I feel like that's fair because she was added more recently. So she doesn't feel like one of his, you know, his characters that he's been snuggling up to all these years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although yeah. the idea of uh, somebody, uh, a stranger snuggling up to Elizabeth Lockley in itself is kind of hard to process. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so much. She's not. She doesn't seem entirely hug enabled. <laughs> At least not for, uh, not to the level of just randomly walking up to her and being like, "Oh, I haven't seen you for so long. Here's a hug." That would I feel like that would not go over so well. Yeah, uh, meditations on the abyss. It's um, an interesting episode to me. Um, it's we'll get into the details as we go uh i was just taking a look at the show notes that i wrote and it felt like a longer episode than it actually was but i didn't feel it didn't feel draggy to me it just felt kind of i don't know um it did a lot it cooked along it was it was compact in the right ways and everything flowed it was well constructed huh i wonder why all that might have been gee imagine that look who's (laughs) directing it (laughs) yeah from the very very first shot steven was like looked over at me and said hmm my vadar is pinging a little bit and then as soon as as soon as his name came up on the screen, he just Stephen just raised one hand in the air in just like <laughs> triumph and vindication and just said, very first shot of the episode. Like he just yep. he knew it. <laughs> yeah. So proud. It was adorable. <laughs> oh. And thanks largely to Stephen, we've been flagging Vehar episodes frequently. I think we are kind of agreed that he is the strongest director of Babylon 5 throughout all Mm -hmm. five seasons. And I don't think it's solely due to him that this episode cooks so well, but it's, you've got a script and it's a good script and you've got a director and it's a great director. And it's just an illustration of the power of a great director to elevate a script. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it, I noticed a little bit in um, jumping around online uh, how JMS was sort of throwing up his hands slightly because at at the time, apparently a lot of people were just like complaining that this was a filler episode. This is not a filler episode. <laughs> this advances the current arc of um, the Interstellar Alliance uh, and the, and the and what they are caught in between with trying to get proof enough to 
basically go after one of the linchpins of their organization. Um, and just because we also touch base, it's not like A plot and B plot. We've got A plot and like subscript one, subscript two, subscript three. We check in on several other characters and see where they're at as well. But yeah, but JMS was, you know, fussing at the time that, you know, people were like calling, you know, build up episodes like this filler and the climaxes were arc stories. And no, this is an arc story. This builds it. Yeah, I'd agree. And the character work that happens throughout this episode, uh, particularly with characters like Veer and Lanier, you know, stuff mm -hmm. happens to them. They end the episode kind of in a different place than they were at the beginning. Um, Which might be why people were calling it filler, because they saw a lot of character growth happening without realizing that the plot was driving this. Hindsight is a big piece of it, too. We... Mm -hmm. Because, as you keep saying, Erica, you know, because we're sort of interrogating these stories as we're watching them this time, and mm -hmm. we're paying close attention to threads and signs and portents and such, that we are watching this show differently than people who were watching it in the mid-90s in real time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, spoilers, we really liked Meditations on the Abyss, or at least I did. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was good. It was good. Yeah. So Good let's episode. dig into it. Uh, if you're dipping into the audio guide to Babylon 5, uh, trying to uh, reacquaint yourself with the show, here's the recap of everything that happened up to this point that feeds into this episode. A fragile interstellar alliance has been born in the shadow of war, but the alliance members are together out of enlightened self-interest, not because they trust each other. Unknown to Centauri Prime Minister Londo Malari, a mysterious faction of the Centauri, with outside help, is attacking the shipping lines of other races. President Sheridan and the rest of his advisory council, minus Malari, suspect the truth, but are keeping it secret for now, A, to protect Londo, and B, because they have no proof. It's a powder keg that could likely explode. Pity that Mimbari Ambassador Delenn's most trusted aide, Lanier, is not around to help in this crisis. But he went off to join the French Foreign Legion, uh, Mimbari Rangers, because he's heartsick with love for her. Because she's married to Sheridan, that would not go well. So, meditations on the abyss. Delenn calls Lanier to a secret mission. Join a ranger crew for training on the edge of Centauri space and search for proof of Centauri responsibility for the attacks. Meanwhile, the Drazi are putting two and two together and suspect the Centauri. Sheridan stalls for proof. Meanwhile, Veer finds out he is soon to become the Centauri ambassador to Babylon 5 and, newly empowered, goes off on a Drazi who attempted to bug Londo's quarters. Jakar spends some time teaching his fellow Narn about life, the universe, and everything, much to Franklin's amusement, and Lanier is put through a couple of training challenges that reveal to his fellow trainee, Findel, the importance of understanding who you are and having a clear sense of purpose. And that was Meditations on the Abyss. It is a very character-heavy episode, and I think we should just sort of borrow a page from our friend Jason Snell at The Incomparable and just sort of go sequentially through it because, you know, you've got character character beats, character beats, character beats, character beats throughout the thing. Let's start with Lanier and Delenn. A very interesting teaser uh, to this episode where Delenn demonstrates that she's not exactly a wallflower. 
Right. Before that, she demonstrates Stephen just just went, hmm, Delenn behaving suspiciously again. What a surprise. As she's sneaking out of her quarters and not telling Sheridan where she's going. I don't think Stephen has, has ever gotten over the, all of the secrets that she has kept from him. So he is going to give her the side eye every time she does something sneaky. And this is totally her doing something sneaky. Uh, and then she's doing something super badass, which is awesome. So I'm okay with it. Yes, that was a lovely demonstration of what to do when you have a guy who absolutely will not leave you alone. So, so I, yeah, I hope everybody took notes. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, I do, I, I do get a little bit tired of. I think it's a choice that Mira Furlan makes, and um, certainly, I, I think it's certainly endorsed by JMS and the directors. But I think that she's usually a little too obvious when she's unsettled or she's trying to lie. I, I tend to think that Delin would be a little more assured than that there's almost a giant neon sign that says i'm i'm not telling you the whole truth john i wonder if it's because it's john i'm i I would have to like go back and take a closer look to see if she was better at it in more political situations and less personal ones um because i feel like there were times when she did pull it off but you know like i said i would have to think back uh and and like look up some examples but if but if it's him, if it's, you know, this man that she has married, I can definitely see her struggling to, uh, you know, if she 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 needs to keep this from him. She has reasons for keeping it from him, but um, she doesn't like it. Yeah, I could see that. The part that I just really, really enjoyed was the fact that she can take care of herself. And we know this, but mm-hmm. just being able to see it in action uh, was was delightful from from the moment that she sits down by herself to. Very, just very Delenn-like, calmly saying, you know, I, you need to go. I'm not going to tell you again. I'm not interested. And then, you know, she changes her tune and, like, does the little smile thing, which he thinks, oh, she's she's coming on to me. <laughs> and no, 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 no. That is, that is a smile of anticipation because she knows what's about to happen next. And it looks like she's about to enjoy it. And I certainly did. So, yeah. And then, of course, you know, there's a, a nice uh, fight scene and she gets some, some help from Lanier. But my favorite part is just her on her own being a badass. Right. You know, yeah. you know that Lanier would do what he's going to do. And it's almost sort of a ho-hum, of course, Lanier to the rescue. But the mm-hmm. subtext of there is that she didn't entirely need it. He's just right. being Lanier. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And it's also exciting because... We didn't know that that's who it was going to be. So it's exciting to have him back. Stephen was very excited. Yeah. I love the entire scene between Lanier and Delin as she gives him the mission and as he reveals a hell of a lot about himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That scene was that scene was finished. And, and Stephen just said, look at how subtly that scene was played. And then he mm-hmm. whispers, they are. <laughs> but uh can but we yeah, give was the just... actors a little credit here too please <laughs> well i think well i think he was, he was talking about it specifically from the direction standpoint because as steven has pointed out a lot of the conversations even the important and really good ones happen to people who are walking in corridors or standing in rooms and this was not that at all this was staged completely differently from any other conversation uh, that we have seen for a long time so they're you know scrunched up in 
I don't know, like halfway into a wall or something like that. And the lighting is very particular and yeah. it makes sense for the space. And they are physically crushed up against each other because they're trying to be quiet and be in this smaller space for this smaller, more private conversation, which then turns into like kind of a, you know, it's a private conversation because she doesn't want anybody else to hear about her plans for sending linear off to do a bunch of spy mission. But then the conversation shifts and it becomes like a more intimate conversation in in that way. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're in a, such a tight space that she's actually able to reach out and touch his face not once but twice during the conversation so it's uh i think part of it is the direction and the 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 putting them together physically in such a small space that gives the actors the opportunity to do this extra work and to really play off of each other with the close-ups yeah and between jms's lines Mm -hmm. and especially bill moomy's delivery it's just like you know he is clearly having two conversations at the same time with her there, there's the yep. there's the one about, you know, what's going on, catching up, here's the mission, that sort of thing. And then there is the second conversation just laid over the top, right smack dab on it, of I'm still in love with you and I still think Sheridan's not good enough for you and <laughs> I'm not going to come out and say it, but neither am I going to hide it. His so. face yeah. when Delenn tells him that she's wants to share something that she doesn't think Sheridan should know. That's hope. That's damn yeah. hope mm-hmm. on his face. Yeah. Yep. And his comment about how, how you know, he doesn't know you as well as he thinks he does. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, she had a really good comeback to that, too. Just say that, well, he knows me, but he loves me. And sometimes mm-hmm. the one gets in the way of the other. So it was, I felt like it was a very evenly balanced conversation. Mm-hmm. But they weren't, uh, you know, they're they're definitely on different pages. They're definitely <laughs> on different well pages. Planned. But I feel like they are communicating without being literal, without being explicit. But I think that they Mm -hmm. both get what the other is saying. They're Mm -hmm. just in that very Minbari way. They are trying to spare each other embarrassment by not just sort of laying it Mm -hmm. all out there. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, when she says that sometimes the one gets in the way of the other and Lanier responds, yes, I imagine that could do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Heavy. They are saying so much. and then, But there's still this paper thin veneer of plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. It's, yep. it's, it's fascinating and it's utterly in character for them it's inc- and it's utterly in character. It's utterly Mimbari. It is. Yeah. Yes. It's so incredibly yes. Mimbari. My only question about this whole thing is... Is it plausible? Would Sheridan really prevent Lanier from going on this mission to protect Lanier and Delenn, you know, ever since Marcus died that line? Uh, it didn't quite ring true for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It, didn't, it doesn't. Maybe she just thinks that he loves her so much that she that he would want to protect her in that way, because you got to remember Delenn is looking at this from her own perspective and she mm-hmm. really, really does care about Lanier. A lot. And she knows that if something were to happen to him, she would be absolutely wrecked. Like it would just be a terrible thing. And she knows that John would want to spare her that much pain. Now, the idea that John actually would understand that she would go through that much pain, that's the part that doesn't quite ring true for me. Uh, But it's so so I still buy her saying that and her thinking, yes, this is the man who loves me. He wants to protect me. So he would want to spare me from that pain that I'm willing to to set myself up for. Uh, So that's that's sort of the way that I like tilt my head and wave it away. Yeah, I I think the same way, putting it down to sort of, you know, early ish days of marriage. 
because certainly before they were married, Sheridan was, he respected Delenn and her abilities and her power to take care of herself and be in command of herself. And now that he is her husband, I can see some of that traditional shifting of, you know, protect the one you love and not even realize he's doing it at first, unless you were to like, you know, step up and call him out on it. So I can sort of see that. It doesn't ring true unless one, unless Delenn is sort of lying to herself a little bit and not realizing it. Maybe. I also don't quite get the value of Lanier being on this mission. She says that he knows the Centauri. I'm not sure that that's going to do him a whole lot of good tooling around in a fighter. Now, to be fair, I'm not remembering what happens in future episodes, but my headcanon is that it's not really about his his experience with the Centauri. It's just that Delenn knows and trusts him, and he's the perfect person to co- go off on a secret mission and report back without any intermediaries. I'm I'm okay with the Centauri bit as well because since they're they're doing these training missions on the edge of Centauri space, they may. I, I think the hope is that they might run into some Centauri ships that are out, you know, in places they're not really expected to be. And then there may be some sort of communication or watching them. And I, I will also say I have no idea what comes next. I don't remember this season. <laughs> um, so so I'm, I'm just sort of just guessing that, that the idea was uh, putting him there in hopes that something will happen, that he will have a chance to witness, whether it's, you know, things that he is witnessing from afar and being able to sort of look at with his more practiced eye at knowing how the Centauri do things, or even having some sort of contact with actual Centauri vessels or people. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen was actually, Stephen was thinking that they were just going to end up going to Centauri Prime. Um, he's like, I, want, I wonder what's going to happen when they get to Centauri Prime, or or are they going there? And I was like, well, his mission was to just do stuff on the edge of Centauri space. So it's kind of clear. It's kind of kind of fuzzy. So, I, you know, you always wonder if, or has he been given any more specific instructions that we just haven't seen on screen? Who knows? Hmm. Yeah, I, I lean towards the idea that, you know, basically put him in the area where if necessary, he can be on the spot. And also because, uh, you know, Dylan points out, because he has dealt with Centauri people face to face before, if they quote unquote get caught, you know, it's not exactly, you know, wrong for the White Stars to be patrolling out in all of these places. But Lanier would have enough experience um, to uh, help talk their way out of any problems that might arise. Yeah, he knows the diplomacy of many different races, you know, working as an attache for an ambassador on Babylon 5. So he would be able to, you know, navigate through the social structure of the Centauri world better than probably any of those other rangers on that ship. Last bit that I wanted to mention about uh, Lanier and Delenn is the fact that he tells Delenn about Morden's visitation and his prediction that Lanier would yeah, betray I the Yeah, I didn't remember that. I did not mm-hmm. remember that. Yeah, um, I, I like that he. I like that he tells her because they're yeah. they're still buds. Like he cares about her so much, and he she's his mentor, and that's that's the kind of thing that you share mm-hmm. um, with somebody that you have such a, a close relationship with. And I appreciated that her reaction was just like, I can't even, I can't even imagine that mm-hmm. because because no, why would you, why would she? I mean, it's fa- it's sort of fascinating. Um, she says that he can stay for a while, and he says that would not be wise, and you're mm-hmm. fully expecting him to come up with some sort of an excuse for why he doesn't want to be around her and Sheridan. But then he comes, and 
it's one hell of a dodge to go for to i i don't want to see you with your husband too uh actually i our greatest enemy came back from the dead and told me that i was going to betray all of us i shouldn't be around you know that's uh that's a mm-hmm. that's a big move <laughs> true uh, one Very of the true. things I've said this before, I hate the most in particularly in sitcoms where plot points r- rely on people holding the idiot box or people reserving information from each other. People share information all over the place in this episode. And that is great. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. We've still got a whole lot of episode to go to. So let's go to our next uh, pairing of characters here. Londo and Veer. <laughs> and a scene that begins with one of the most obvious, as you know, Bobs. <laughs> it's literally, as you know, Veer, I'm going to be emperor someday. No, really? <laughs> to a delightful character shift for Veer Kodo. It was so nice. Stephen was also very excited to see Veer back mm-hmm. uh, and just watch him interacting with Londo and and then... Yeah, by the end of the episode, really taking matters into his own hand. But just just seeing him, there's there was one particular close up on Stephen First's face as we like go to a commercial or something um, of him after he has discovered that he is going to be the next Centauri ambassador. And it's just mm-hmm. he just does that little Stephen First almost head tilt, straighten the neck sort of thing with his sort smile to be like, oh, yeah, straightening himself ex- up like he's I like he's yeah. accomplished something. He does yep. that so well. Yes. <laughs> JMS just loves to come up with the most inane things for Londo and Veer to talk about. You know, they they go into this spiel about fast food and the thinly veiled McDonald's and, you know, and yeah. I'm just shaking my head. Right. It's like, really, JMS? <laughs> you know, you, just, mm-hmm. you had to belabor it. <laughs> um, but I do like the fact this is kind of like our next sort of setup for changing of the guard. Because we had uh, Franklin already announced that he will be leaving at the end of the year. And of course, we've already had Sheridan uh, step down from the captain and Lockley to step in. So we've got another sort of reminder that, you know, this is all sort of, you know, it looks like it's going to come to an end soon, last season. So chess pieces are being moved. Um, and another one's in place. Yeah. That banter about McBarries is kind of fun, kind of funny, mm-hmm. kind of cringy. And then they discover the bug. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a load of fun. And then we get the future Ambassador Veerth stuff. And then fast forwarding at the beginning of the episode, Londo says, you're not ready yet. But by the time I leave, you'll be ready to be ambassador to Babylon 5. And then at the end, he's ready because <laughs> it, 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 it's so comedic because he just needed a sword. One of my favorite scenes of the entire show, the entire show is... Mm-hmm is Veer walking matter-of-factly into Londo's quarters, grabbing the sword, matter-of-factly yes. walking out. Nope, just need to borrow this for a minute. I'll be right back. Just completely deadpan, completely underplayed. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. glorious. And then in the confrontation with the Drazi, you can then tell that Veer's not exactly a badass. He's, no, you know. But he's mad. He, he's, you he's know, bad he, and he's a bit of an ass. But <laughs> he's but he's mad. Yeah, yeah. He 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 comes across as sort of crazed, but mm-hmm. not actually you know Garibaldi tough. Um, yep. And it's mm-hmm. perfectly in character for him. He it, mm-hmm. he he impresses and frightens the Drazi, and there's there's Londo just puffed up like a proud papa, as Zach says later. Um, but it's it's 
so true to the character. Yep. And it's and it's I, I feel like it works too because you yeah, you wouldn't see Veer transform into a character like Londo. That just wouldn't make any any sense. Certainly not in the space of one episode and certainly not based on all the other stuff that we've seen from him. So that's that's not that's not what he requires to become ready to be the ambassador. He just he just needs to show show everybody that they can't expect him to be the same doormat that they just always walked along. And now he's he has made himself a wild card. And that is that is what he needed. That's the extra special sauce that he needed to put into the mix to get himself to, you know, worthwhile ambassador status, because now people are going to think twice when they're trying to do their dealings with him, because you don't know, is he going to show up with a sword and, you know, bust my stuff up? Maybe he is. Mm-hmm. Spoo for brains. <laughs> Spoo for brains. Oh, adorbs. Well, moving on, let's go back to Lanier and let's visit White Star 27. And thank God they gave this White Star a name. You know, (laughs) it's always bugged me in the back of my head all series. Once the White Star fleet was introduced, the ships were never given names. They were always just given numbers. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like Sheridan and Delin and everybody else in the, you know, just automatically know which ships are which number and all that stuff. I'd never be able to keep up with that. Captain Montoya (laughs) names, apparently uniquely among the Rangers, names his ship the Maria and thank you. Just (laughs) thank you, Captain Montoya. I had to think. I was trying to figure out if this was a cultural thing or not. Um, I was trying to remember whether the Mimbari named, like, the warships back in the in the Earth-Mimbari War. I, I remember names being given to a lot of them by other uh, races, like, um, you know, but you know, a Black Star, there was Trigada. And I'm not sure if smaller ships got such designations. So it, it struck mm-hmm. me, especially with, you know, Lanier and uh, Fendel listening, as Montoya explains, you know, that he did it. It struck me as this um, contrast between human culture and Mimbari culture, that human culture sort of personified these ships as they took them across the ocean and then they took them into space, that there was always a name for this thing. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure that that's Mimbari culture. Yeah, that was sort of that was sort of how I was kind of reading it cuz yeah, I also could not come up with uh examples of, you know, Minbari cruiser 1 2 3 4 5 or anything like that. Um and then from the sort of doyalist perspective outside of the narrative itself, I mean, they they created this this fancy new ship at the time and at the time there was just the one and it was mm-hmm. the White Star. The White Star, yeah. Yeah, and then they you know, big surprise, they're making an entire class of this ship. So that's actually the class of the ship is White Star. And where do you go from there? Like, you, you're you not going to rename your main White Star ship. So just, ah, we'll just give them numbers, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Or at the time, the Vorlons were still involved. Maybe it was a Vorlon thing. Eh. At the start of this episode, I didn't feel great about the authenticity uh, the feeling of authenticity, militariness of the Maria's crew and the captain and the Membari. I was reminded of in an interview he gave not too long after he filmed War Without End Parts 1 and 2. Michael O'Hare observed that it was kind of weird to be playing this military figure wearing all of these swooshy robes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just didn't, it just didn't feel right. And for the first time, I really felt like 
the Minbari and the Rangers didn't feel very military. It didn't feel very real. It felt like Gandalf in space, almost. And then by the end of this episode, I came around. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. Montoya uh, dealing with Lanier and Fendel, it, it did feel more like a military organization. I was wondering what you two thought of uh, the Rangers as presented in this episode and um, just did it feel real to you? You know, I never really, I guess I don't really think of the Rangers as a military organization, even though I recognize that that is, that is kind of what they are. Um, in terms of uh, playing a military person in swishy robes, I mean, that is a very Western culture centric thing to mm-hmm. say, because if you look at military costumes from other cultures, especially, you know, past some past cultures. Yeah, you see men in all kinds of long swooshy things with swords. So I, I, I don't think that there it has anything to do with the clothing, except that, you know, if, if you grew up in the United States at the time that Michael O'Hare did. Yeah, military guys were wearing fatigues and stuff. So so. Obviously, it's not the same. But because I don't think military first when I think of rangers, I think of spies and somewhat protective force. Um, and yeah, that part. United Nations military. blue helmets and things like that. Yeah. So it's it's I guess I didn't have any trouble with it because I feel like they're they're uh, they're kind of trying a new thing sort of is is what the rangers are bringing in everybody to help and to just try to keep the peace. I mean, they're, they're, they're peacekeepers. And so I just, I didn't have a problem with that. I was, I was focusing on the training that, uh, that Lydier and, and the other fellow were doing more as just, just ranger training as opposed to mm-hmm. military training, even though, yes, it all, it all fits within the, their military remit that they have, which they, which they certainly do. But I mean, you know, you had your commanding officer who I loved. I loved Captain Montoya from moment one. Um, nice work getting a good, a good actor to uh, mm-hmm. just pop in for an episode. Maybe more. I don't know if he comes back. I hope he does because he was great. But yeah. yeah. So it, you had the, the chain of command stuff going on and the new recruit kind of feel. So it, 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 it adhered enough for me to that sort of military style of developmental story. It's boot camp. Yeah. And, and for me, again, um, the Rangers don't quite fit into traditional military mindsets as people from the 20th century United States type mentality would think. What I was seeing was kind of Delenn's vision coming together because you had, again, the human versus the Membari outlook come up a few times with Lanier, who has had more experience with humans, explaining to Findel here and there, this is how humans think, or this is what they might be doing. And also seeing Montoya come up with the kind of training exercises that I think, you know, those of us who have seen enough science fiction could tell some of what was going on. I think, you know, I I don't think I was surprised at the beginning with the exercise of, hey, there's one hour of uh, airtime left. What what do you do? We're going to take off and not tell you to be put into those exercises. The live action asteroids combat feels like a very human idea, um, adding the competition element to it. Certainly, uh, Findel was not expecting that. Um, so, you know, I was seeing a lot of cultural differences being sorted out and being used to help, uh, especially more sheltered Membari, figure out what this organization is all about, what is expected of us, and, you know, can we do it? And in the end, 
we're right back to Minbari protecting each other from embarrassment, and mm-hmm. uh, and Captain <laughs> yep. Montoya is fully on board with that. Yeah. As as Fendel, who's been going through this whole episode as uh, clearly in the wrong place for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. and he's struggling with uh, self confidence and his entire reason for being in the Rangers, and he finally breaks Lanier and Captain Montoya give him a graceful out which is amazing and then as Findel leaves Lanier and Montoya have another one of those great on the record conversations where you know we understand each other we understand what we did you know and Lanier who we've been told has been training too hard and certainly went to the Rangers for what we would probably consider to be the wrong reasons he does turn out to be a really capable ranger in this episode and also reads Fendel absolutely correctly, even if he's not necessarily reading himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, Marcus also had joined the yeah. Rangers for, for, for the wrong reason. So, you know, we have we have some history showing us that just because you joined for the wrong reason doesn't necessarily mean that you will fail uh, or you will be be bad at it. But now we also have the flip side of that coin that, yeah, it's a dangerous thing uh, for for you and for the people around you if you are not in it wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Death is not the enemy. Death simply is. Montoya's mm-hmm. a good boss. Mm-hmm. He really is. Of course, yeah. I think with with Marcus, the reason he was able to sort of get by that is because he didn't he didn't really have much of a fear of death. He had a death wish, if anything. So, right, maybe that's why he he fit in a little bit better than poor. And Fennell, plus, he's old. I, he, stri- he was older. Fendel strikes me as being a very young person, and that would make a difference as well. Yeah, and one other thing in Marcus's favor, Marcus was absolutely, he may not have been on board with the mysticism or the Minbari sort of dogma part of it, but he was absolutely committed to the Rangers' mission and the Rangers' values uh, as demonstrated when he put his life on the line in front of Naroon. And Fendel clearly doesn't have that going for him. Nope. Maybe Lanier does. There are a couple of other quick things that happened in this episode, character-wise. The Drazi confrontation with Sheridan and Delin and Jakar. Again, I love it that, and this this is real politic here, that the Drazi ambassador tells Sheridan, Delin, and Jakar in private, okay, I think I know what's going on. When are you going to give it? And Sheridan and the others are relatively candid in return they don't lie and say we have no idea what's going on they Mm -hmm. say that you need to give us more time because we are looking for proof Mm -hmm. Um, that feels real it feels like sheridan is trapped in a damned if you do damned if you don't moment uh we'll get into that a little bit later at the end of the episode but and then Londo just charges in to threaten mm-hmm. the Drazi ambassador. And that would have been such a great Londo moment, except that we all know what's really going on here. And, and he doesn't. <laughs> oh. Yeah. That felt like very first season Londo coming back. Um, all the stuff about the Drazi ambassador's wife and things like that. Just, <laughs> yeah. Overplaying his hand because he has no idea what's really going on, apparently. Yep. Yeah, it it feels like he went in thinking that he was punching down, and the Drazi is seething, but the Drazi has reason to seethe, and it's not just his precious ego. 
Um, yeah. And and yeah. Although I do I do like the the later scene when it's you know some of the crew sitting around and laughing around the dinner table about Veer, and mm-hmm. we get Delenn once again saying I don't believe that Londo knows what's going on. Right. And I, I, to me, that's important because I, I, I just love Delenn so much and she, she's such a great character. And I, I don't like it when smart, wise characters believe the wrong thing simply mm-hmm. to make the plot go, mm-hmm. you know, holding mm-hmm. the stupid box. And, uh, and she doesn't. But, but because, because of the way that this intricate uh, political setup has been presented to us she can't do anything else except for what she's doing so she has to keep it secret so there's a there's a good reason for for keeping secret but she believes the thing that is the smart thing and as we know as viewers the true thing and then uh, it gets one-upped by uh dr franklin saying or dr franklin i think it was who who basically says that's really worrisome that you know londo Mm -hmm. the prime minister or the soon-to-be emperor doesn't know what's going on what the actual f Yeah. yeah They are, I believe, behaving ethically. I'm not sure about morally, but they're doing their jobs as the advisory council. They are looking for proof. Mm-hmm. They are um, – they're not being super Machiavellian about it except to the extent that Delenn has sent Lanier off on a secret mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that catch-22, uh, without proof of the Centauri attacks – Sheridan says that the alliance is going to fall apart because he's going to have to, without that proof, if the Drazi start acting up against the Centauri, Sheridan's going to have to say, no, you can't do that. White Star is going to get involved and it's just going to be a big mess and the interstellar alliance is over. With the proof, especially since Londo doesn't know, it's likely to get ugly in and of itself. I feel like these are good people trapped by their goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Imagine that's, that. That's uh, the show in a nutshell. Yeah. True. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that a representative democracy or representative government hemmed in by its own sense of ethics and morals, you know? Um, it, who knew that this was fantasy? Hmm. <laughs> no doubt. But once again, the right people around the table are well-informed, are making plausible decisions. This is good. I mean, if you, you we've struggled through a telepath subplot here for a, for a while now. I feel to a certain extent, and even though I didn't hate the telepath plot as much as other people might have, I feel like this is kind of a return to Babylon 5. Yeah, mm-hmm. it did. It just, it felt like... Babylon 5, it felt like our characters acting the way our characters act. Um, and they're put in a tough situation and they're doing the things that I would expect them to do in not always in exact ways that I would expect them to do it. You know, there's there's definitely surprises like Veer and the sword. As you said, that is an amazing scene of him marching into just deadpan, grab the sword and, and march back out. Stephen laughed out loud and so did I. So, yeah, it's just it's. I love the characters on this show. I love the plotting of the show. It was the marriage of all of of the the best bits of Babylon 5 put together in an episode that's not an over-the-top, you know, space battle epic, but has all of the other good things that I love. Mm-hmm. Well, let's mention a couple of those last things before we go into spoiler space. Uh, since, we, since we've jumped to the end of the episode and we've talked about dinner, let's talk about the dinner guest who wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Jerry Doyle doesn't have a lot to do this episode, but what he does, ugh. Um, mm-hmm. 
that was not a very covert pizza order. I have the feeling that somebody at the Fresh Air restaurant knows exactly what's up with the head of covert operations for the Alliance. And this is not good, Mm -hmm. Michael Garibaldi. This is not good at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, Stephen was actually a little bit baffled by that sequence um, as as well as it was performed and and stuff. But he just said that was a very that was very dramatic for the resumption of a drinking problem that we already knew he had. So it was and it it did seem like it was hammering the point home a little bit hard because we've been seeing this uh, consistently. but. Consistently, yes, but over the span of several weeks or, you know, maybe even a month or so, depending on what other programming was interrupting and shuffling uh, airtime at the time. So I think this was Mm -hmm. deliberately to remind us, you know, because um, in Day of the Dead, we didn't see any evidence of his of his drinking problem. That's true. Um, And, you know, and it's been a couple of episodes before that because we've had the telepath stuff that we saw his his first cracks um on um blowing a mission. So I think yeah. I think this was JMS making sure people remembered. Yeah, uh <laughs> when Garibaldi went to the Drazi homeworld, he missed some steps and he got beaten up, but that was stuff that could happen on a bad day if he'd been distracted. What he does at the end of this episode, it's not exactly subtle that he orders a suicide pizza. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think it. This, I think we are. This meant- is to show progression. Yes, mm-hmm. or regression, or you, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. getting worse for Michael, and I think we are meant to see that. Yeah, and he has like directly let down his friends too. Mm-hmm. I think is another big thing, and not just his friends, but like his friends having what is basically a meeting that's mm-hmm. you know important to his position in the organization. So. Yeah, he is. He is effing up left and right. Yeah. And then finally, Jakar and Franklin. Um, You know, (laughs) this was one of those scenes that made me go, oh, damn it. They're not with us anymore. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I was reminded that neither is Stephen first. But Richard Biggs and Andreas Katsoulis do so well with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love how the scene where Jakar gets his new eye is staged. Uh, You can, you can, you can see the, you can see the video cable. The video. Yes. You can, you (laughs) can see the video cable running down uh, Franklin's arm at the very end of that scene. They weren't able to completely disguise it, but But still showing, showing on the screens behind him that what, what the eye is seeing was just, Mm -hmm. I thought was a brilliant touch. I don't know if that was written into the script by JMS. I don't know if that was Vehar's idea or who but it was brilliant but yeah very very inventively staged and then the performance when franklin gets his foundationism on and sits in on one on uh one of jakar's lectures mm-hmm. and jakar has this ornate response to uh the question about what is truth and what is god and mm-hmm. jakar is trying to make a point that sort of bypasses religion altogether mm-hmm. and the narn goes yeah, but you didn't answer my question. Jakar just gives up with a simplistic right. analogy. And, if, <laughs> and, and everybody goes, it. yeah. And then Franklin is so amused. Franklin got exactly <laughs> what was going on. I love yeah. this scene. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has no lines in that scene, and yet he is such an integral part mm-hmm. of it and part of why it works. His yeah. smile and like little half shrug as he turns away was just what you gonna do yeah Yeah. chef's kiss delightful (laughs) yeah i i loved everything about these scenes Uh, i loved 
the fact that uh, they copy Garibaldi's coffee stain from, yes. from the manuscript that, you know, that that's still in there. Um, you know, I love, you know, bringing back the foundationism idea. I really like, I think JMS is trying to say some things about religion in general through Jakar, the importance of not taking oneself too seriously uh, to, you know, accept the humor and the absurdity of our existence, uh, things like that. And like you said, you know, he is trying to make an honest to goodness point about what, you know, that people have to search for their own truths. And, you know, when they stop and they are satisfied is exactly how much enlightenment they get to. And it goes over everyone's head. It, it goes <laughs> over all their heads. And Jakar just, you know, like you said, he just loses his temper. He's had enough. He, you know, throws something at them just, you know, just to finish it. And 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 Franklin just sort of looks on and goes like, I feel you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in B5, you know, this has been, this has been an episode of favorites. And that, that sort of surprised me because, you know, this feels like an arc episode to us, but it didn't feel like an arc episode to everybody back then. But Jakar's line about sometimes God looks remarkably like us. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a powerful, that's a powerful line. That's a powerful line about the amount of effort that we put into religion to make religion hue to our own biases. And that that just comes out in one incisive line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's really good at what he does, but the people who listen to him are maybe not so good at what they're doing. <laughs> no, not at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that all of the I's have been dotted and T's have been crossed in terms of him becoming a spiritual figure. You know, the book mm-hmm. of Jakar was not 100%. It, you know, it's, it certainly didn't start <laughs> off as a religious text. He's talking mm-hmm. about his experiences in the war. He's talking about how the Centauri cannot be trusted and things like that. And he becomes an influential author. Why would somebody be asking him what is truth and what is God? I'm not sure that we've gotten there yet. I'm not sure we've gotten to the point where a random Narn would be sitting in there holding a flower. Um, <laughs> you know, he, but uh, if it's working for you, Jakar, go roll with it, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of showing a bit, you know, his own, both his taking responsibility for this now that his book is out and now that he is influencing people through the book he is trying to go further to you know keep because because it wasn't finished he wasn't (laughs) done with it and it got published so he's trying to keep you know sort of steering people to what he meant and show them what he meant and again trying to sort of teach them to think for themselves and figure it out for themselves but everyone has latched on to this in transit process as a done deal and now he's got to try and deal with that as best he can so you know he's in a he's in a situation not that it's not of his making but he certainly wasn't ready to um to take the next step yeah it's quite a pickle any final thoughts about meditations on the abyss before we go into spoiler space I would just like to in uh, express that the song that uh, Garibaldi was singing as he was drunk, that is a song that I only know. And yes, I know it's an old drinking song, but I only first heard it in a different science fiction show <laughs> in uh, in Red Dwarf, where uh, the lyrics are slightly different. It's uh, show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago to celebrate Rimmer's death. 
So for all you Red Dwarf fans, that's that's the lyric I always expect to hear, even though I know that's not the actual song. Um, so that that made me laugh very hard. And then I sang it to Stephen and he cracked up. So it was a good moment. Nice. Yeah, uh, I think this is a really strong episode not just the character development, character beats we get seeded into action that is moving forward, but it just feels like, like we've said, everything sort of just came together to represent some of the best of what Babylon 5 can do in, in a quiet episode versus a big showy, you know, hey, uh, arc ending thing. Yeah. I concur. It's a fabu episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, next time... We will be doing an episode with the pleasant, happy-go-lucky title, Darkness Ascending. <laughs> Uh-oh. So that's your homework yep. for the next but two who weeks. who knows what that means? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, titles, they don't mean anything. Uh, so that's your homework for next time. We can be found on the web at b5audioguide.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at b5audioguide. And Tumblr as well. And thank you so much for contributing to the chat threads. We're so close to the end of Season 5. I really, really can't believe it. Uh, But before we get to the end of Season 5, we've still got a few stops in spoiler space left, including this one. Was this the last time that we get to see everybody sort of happy and being themselves around each other? I think it kind of is. For some of the characters, yeah. Maybe not every single one of them, but yeah, we're kind of close. Because, uh, Shannon, you did, and I was I was worried that you were going to leap into spoiler uh, space prematurely there, but you're right. Fans were complaining about mm-hmm. uh, this episode being, quote, filler. And mm-hmm. for the Lurker's Guide page for Darkness Ascending, you've got JMS quotes about how, no, this was the setup episode for mm-hmm. Darkness Ascending. Right. Because the truth's going to come out, and it's going to be a very, very bad day for Londa Malari, and it's going to be a very bad day for the Alliance. And here we go. Yeah. Yep. Buckle we, up. We- Yep, we we get Montoya back next episode. We do. Oh, yay. So, yes, he he shows up one more time. And yeah, it's like, you know, this was sort of yeah, as you said, set up for, you know, Lanier um nearly getting himself killed as he discovers certified proof that the Centauri are behind this, and then Londo finds out. And things just go nuts. <laughs> yep. And this is the beginning of the end for Londo Malari, even though he's going to last almost 20 years after this. This is kind of it before he starts walking down a path that he's not going to be happy with the ending of, that's for sure. We're probably going to need blankets and fuzzy kittens and things like that after the next few episodes. (laughs) Yeah, Lanier Lanier is also going to make some poor choices and... Yeah, I mean, could you just listen to yourself in this episode, Lanier? Right, yeah. Right? All this good advice, and he can't apply it to himself. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is 100% intentional on JMS's part. You know, yeah. this is, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's and it's really clever. At the moment, I'm feeling better, not, not about what Lanier is going to do, but I'm feeling like it's earned. More and more, mm-hmm. I'm feeling like it's earned. JMS and his, you know, 
double meanings or, you know, not saying everything, you know, Lanier comes to, you know, goes to Delenn or in his conversation with Delenn talks about the um, visitation from Morden and how Morden says he's going to betray the Anla Shock and Delenn's like, you would never betray the Rangers. And it's like, well, uh, yeah, Sheridan's, you know, killing one of the leadership of the Rangers. That's, that's pretty much, that's betrayal. <laughs> That, that, you know, it. they're thinking in terms of him doing something to, you know, like a large group of the of the rangers. Like, you know, they're not thinking in the right terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it's, and it's going to turn around and uh, we get to the point where Lanier nearly kills Sheridan until he thinks I, better of it. I wonder if you're right that Delenn is, is not thinking in the right terms. I wonder if Lanier possibly has has the thought because because just because of the way it's phrased, it's it's mm-hmm. Delenn says, I can't think of anything that you would possibly do. And that might have even been one of the moments she was reaching out, I believe, to caress mm-hmm. his face. I can't imagine anything that you would do to betray us or the on the shock. And mm-hmm. he, he says very sort of slowly and deliberately, neither can I. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if maybe behind his eyes, he's thinking, oh, like maybe maybe he just thought of something that kind of qualifies sideways yeah 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 if he's if if he's imagined you know somehow you know sheridan out of the picture in whatever way he imagines it yeah (laughs) that 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 counts i mean he is legitimately haunted by Mm -hmm. well he was haunted actually he was literally haunted (laughs) Uh, but he is legitimately haunted by the possibility that he would betray the rangers and that would not be wise for me to stay with you underscore and share it and close you know that Mm -hmm. that may be that may be well in the back of his mind but um or or he's wrestling with the realization that you know if if he is contemplating you know what what could he do to take sheridan out of the picture you know, has he figured out that that does betray Delenn? That, you know, it, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, rescuing her in any way. She is perfectly happy with Sheridan. Um, it is not that he can provide anything better. She clearly does not feel the same way about him. Um, Except for all the face touching. Stop yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry. I have, Sorry a lot of all cap- I have a lot of all caps in my notes from that sequence. <laughs> you, re- Yeah, you, you, you she- really feel like she's leading him on, don't you? I do. I don't know. I I genuinely am not sure that she realizes that she's doing it. I don't know. I, just, I, I mean, there's touching. She, she touching may intellectually and... think so, but she cannot stop the instinct of you know th- this <laughs> beloved child that she has seen grow up. Right. You know. I know for her, it's it, you know perhaps it's more of a motherly gesture, mm-hmm. but in we've seen that in Mimbari culture, it's th- touching is not the same. They don't right. hug. They right. they usually bow to each other. Yeah, they, they don't even very, shake hands. Right. Nope. Nope. Right. Like you put your hand on somebody else's, mm-hmm. you know, chest yeah. over their clothes to, yeah. to give a really big greeting. So reaching out to actually touch the skin of somebody else just to me feels like a really big deal. And, and yes, she could very well be meaning it in more of a, you know, I I or nurtured what you. She's learned, <laughs> or what she's learned from Sheridan. I mean, she's clearly, you know, learned mm. that with humans, it's different. And, you know, has she like unconsciously picked up on a couple of habits that she should not be extending to ah. the people of her own race who are going to interpret it differently. That's also very possible. Mm. I have a hard time believing that Lanier is seriously contemplating killing Sheridan or anything like that mm-hmm. at this point. Um, yeah, not he contemplating, is still, no. He is still a good person and he's right. still trying and he's still horrified by what Morden has said. 
you know, the whole point of what happens in Objects at Rest is that he had a moment of weakness. Yeah, it's an impulse decision. And and, and he and he fought it down too late. But yeah, it's messy. It's messy. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like the groundwork for that momentary bad decision is being effectively late. Franklin says at the dinner, let's not borrow trouble. We've got a month before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that Franklin, Eternal you optimist. cockeyed optimist. Yeah. Yep. That's very, that's very Franklin. It is. Bless his heart. And uh, Garibaldi's tag, yes, it's very much going to get worse. He's going to be asleep at the wheel for a very important transmission. And I think that this scene was really good that it happened before that moment. So it just doesn't come completely out of the blue. Right. Yeah, I, I do think we needed like that little reminder of, you know, Garibaldi is slipping. This is just how badly he's slipping now. Yeah. Yep. But guess who's going to be back in the next episode? Lise. Denise Gentle. Oh my gosh, Gentile. that's right. <laughs> yep. His his, his 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 fiance or girlfriend or I don't I don't I don't I, it's been so long since we've seen her we don't even know the exact status. Um mm. well, I think it's either they, fiance or wife because they talked about getting married. Uh I think they get married at the end of the season. I don't think okay, they're quite so, there yet. Uh, so but, fiance but she's been she's been a non-factor in this entire season except for being mentioned in mm-hmm. Day of the Dead. Yeah. It's about time that she got back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I imagine that she'll be in the opening credits, so I imagine that Stephen will be sitting bolt upright. You know what else is happening next time? Lita's back and she and Jakar <laughs> make a deal. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's right. <laughs> That's going to be some fun stuff in next episode, even though there's going to be a whole mess of pain and angst as well. That's 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 battle on five at its best, though, really. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, damn it. <laughs> so that'll be next time on the audio guide to Babylon Five. Please jump into the spoiler threads if you will, and man, Stevens that much closer to being able to catch up on more than a hundred episodes of our podcast. (laughs) So excited. So excited. Alrighty then. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, this is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton and Shannon in Durham. You have been listening to the audio guide, the Babylon five. Mm -hmm.